Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A global adventure exploring how to use your gifts and talents to make a difference. As usual, I'm joined by my friend, Jay Mormon. All right, Kelsey, you ready for part two? Let's do it. Yeah, well, today we've got uh, part two of Kelsey Nielsen from No White Saviors. Uh, we uh, had a chance to um, spend some time with her and uh, just the conversation went so long we had to do it, cut it into two pieces um, and it doesn't get any less interesting. She is, uh, she is fascinating to talk to. So, and of course, we'll, uh, we'll have our commentary and thoughts at the end. So without further ado, Kelsey Nielsen, part two. It was a company uh, yeah. project in Kenya, and it was in um, let's see, it was in Mathari Valley, uh, Mathari Valley slum, and in, in uh, Nairobi. And there were kids there that were following the group, and you know the Mzungu Mzungu thing. And they were saying, I heard one kid say, um, as he was like posing for a picture, "Do you want me to smile or do you want me to cry?" Oh my gosh! You know, and I that is wow. like just so. Oh, that's just wow. horrible. Right. And, and I was, uh, when I was researching my book, where am I giving, which I write about some of this and I have like actual tips shared from, uh, like when or should you, or should you not take a picture? I include that in the book, but in the course of this book where I've had some awakening to thinking about these things and I'm right there with you, I, I look back on some experiences and as we're talking, I can, like, I can even list them and maybe we'll even get into some of them. But, right. uh, we were on this, it was, we were in Lamu, Kenya in a group we were accompanying this uh, school on its field trip to this other community. And, um, you know, it was locally led. It felt relatively, I think har- it was harmless. I think it was some good happening. Um, but this kid like basically climbs up me and I'm holding this kid and, and someone took a picture of me uh, holding mm-hmm. this kid and then they posted it on Facebook and tagged it. And then I, wow. you know, I immediately, like and I, this may have been this is even before I think No White Saviors was around, but I just remember feeling right. like I saw that and I'm like I I don't feel good that that <laughs> yeah. picture is there, you know? Because people could, what are my intentions? Though I think I'm, you know, because the the narrative is, oh, here's this white dude holding this kid who thinks he's like doing some good in the world, you know what I mean? Like and I I didn't right. feel like I was doing anything there, right? right. Um, and so just the, the awkwardness of, of that, but those are the pictures that you see all the time and you, and it's almost like it gives you some type of, uh, you know, a lot of times that people don't feel uncomfortable about those pictures and they feel like maybe it gives them some type of, um, social credibility or like you said in the church, how the, 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 the harsher conditions you face, the more challenging conditions you face like give you more status in that world. And you hate to see that that's how those photos are this currency for that kind of like Western status. Oh, they absolutely are. Like that's, that's like the, I mean, if you even look at, I think that one of the most telling things is to look at people's comments and reactions Mm. to those photos. Like I even, if I look at back on the time of where I was like co running a bide and that was, if I look back on pictures and content from that, that like I had relationships, like those were, we had an emergency housing on our site. So there were people that were basically families that were living with us, like on site, not in 
I had my own separate apartment, but like their apartment was like 30 feet away from mine. So I'd wake up in the morning. These kids were like, were there to like have coffee, like take tea. And I would have my coffee and we would sit together and they would come into my apartment and play with my stuff and mess it up. And they were like, you know, like, you know, you like how you have your nieces or nephews. Like they became like family at certain points because some of the families stayed longer than others. And that's great, right? Like I, we had relationships, but I look at back at the comments and the like, yeah. the likes and all of that. And people, that imagery that's so ingrained is like, it was just continuously reinforced that like, look at, and even the way people would speak about me and speak, like it was just, it, it's so clearly like white saviors. And the difference between the work I was doing then and the work I'm doing now is that like, there's just not that same, and that's, it's, that's how it should be, right? There's not the same level of like, well, look at Kelsey's going and sacrificing so much and, and, and she's living in Uganda. And this is like, it's, it's more so like, no, Kelsey lives over there because she wants to live there. And because that's where she prefers to be right now. And she is doing work she's passionate about, but it's no level of like, you're this martyr, this like self-sacrificial. And yeah, I think that that's um, there. Yeah. There's definitely an attraction to that. I think for a lot of us that, you are instantly this like, um, just this like, not, yeah, you're just this like selfless person who cares so much about other people that you'd move halfway across the world when you're not weighing all of the benefits and all of the reasons why we're doing it. It's yeah. not because we hate it there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get that all the time. And, you know, I, I don't live the places, but I travel to places and meet people. And I think of this picture of this woman and and Kenya, who I interviewed, who was just like badass entrepreneur, community leader, and just like, you know, she was great. And, you know, had, she was an amazing leader in this community and getting it, I got my picture taken with her, right? And we were laughing. And then like the comments you get for something, and I'm not even saying like, I, you know, I shared how awesome she was and right. what I shared. And, but then, then people will just go into the comments on something like that and post like, oh, it's so great that you're there. Like this idea that I'm helping her in some way and I'm absolutely not helping her right. in any way, right? And yeah, you know, yeah. And yeah. Kelsey Timmerman, I hate that your names are the same. It's very <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, uh, but Kelsey Timmerman, I will say, when I read your books, one of the things that I really liked about them was and it goes back to my point earlier, is you did humanize these people, right? You talked about what they were doing and who they were, and, and you talked about their smiles and, and the, the fun things they did and how, you know, why their jobs are there and what their jobs are like. You didn't dehumanize those people. So I think you telling their story helps to make the world a, a, a smaller place because I realized that somebody that's harvesting uh, coffee beans has a family and plays soccer when they're not at work, like I might. Um, so I, it, there's a difference there, and I know it's probably subtle depending on how it's done. But that's one of the powerful parts of your book is you're 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 personalizing and bringing these people to me that I wouldn't have met, and they're not any different than people that live next to me and people that live down the street. You know, really early on in my work, this was 2007, I was in uh, Bangladesh. This is the kind of my first step into the wear my wearing experience. And I had a translator and we were talking to people who worked in the garment industry. And then we were kind of in between interviews. And I remember walking down the street. I'll just never forget this moment. And then she was like, um, 
So like you're taking these stories and I didn't know if this would be a book. I had some small radio assignments and things like that. She's like, so you're taking these stories, you're going to write about these people and then you're going to get paid for it. Like what, Uh, what do you, what do you you get? So almost like I'm harvesting stories. Right. And that was, I think a really good gift early on that made me question my intentions and, um, the way that I did the work and I'm always looking at myself like through her eyes to some extent and have to have to have to make sure that I'm doing it in the right way that is right. like responsible. And I think probably sometimes i I fail at that as well. Cause she has a point, right? I'm going to these places. Uh, I, I don't tell people that, that I'm going to help them in any way. I, you know, ask them if they want to share their story and other people read about that story and that's probably not going to help them in any way either. Um, but that is a responsibility that comes with that. And I've been self-critical ever since that comment. And that was like Mm -hmm. my first ever step into this work. Yeah, no, I think that actually was my first reaction to that. And I think that that's something that I've continued to wrestle with as well is like, what does it look like, um, to do this work as an ally or a collaborator rather than the one coming in and speak like that's that difference between being a voice for the voiceless or just passing the mic, right? Is that we feel like, I think oftentimes if someone's not getting representation or a cause or a problem is not getting representation, then we need to be the ones that are speaking on it. And I think to some extent, absolutely, there is a time and place for that, but there is even more of a need for focus on how do we lift up the voices of people? Like not just telling their stories, but actually having their stories told through their own lens, through their own voice. Um, and getting that access. So whether that's collaborating and like co-writing a book um, with folks from these communities and finding a way for them to also um, benefit from the sale of the book or like those are all things that I think, I think that we're all, everyone that is passionate that is in a level of privilege or access is, is, is and should be wrestling with, right? And yeah. I don't think any of us have the definite answer for what that looks like. Um, But I think that that is a necessary thing to grapple with because there's obviously at this point with our growth, we've talked about what a potential book could look like for us. And I know that for me, I would never, I would never write a book myself just about what we're doing as a white person. Um, Not because I don't think there's valuable things for me to say, but because of a lot of what we were just talking about is, I would only feel comfortable if it was if it was done in collaboration and it was done in a way that it was equitable. And I, um, I so often have like people tell me that I'm a good writer and that I should explore that option. But until I feel really confident about the way it would be done, I don't I don't think I could step into that space yeah. because I I mean, but I but to be honest, like even though it's not writing a book, the work that we're doing with No White Saviors there's been a level of like contemplation and wrestling with what that, what the ethics of that should look like. And what that looks like is we, we, I take on a lot of side consultation and like, um, you know, kind of like coaching or consultation work with people who are coming to me saying, I want, can you look at this document? Can you look at this policy we have in place? And so I can make money doing that because of how big our platform is. And that's just like, I don't feel I don't know. I I don't feel guilty for that, but in terms of like, I I don't know, there's just aspects of, and I think that it's a conversation worth having is 
benefiting off of we're obviously like we need to make money we need to make like we live in a capitalist world we need to make a salary we need to make a living but how is that done ethically when it comes at the intersection of it being you know resourced by the problems and experiences of marginalized communities yeah I mean, you know, I've written about garment workers and farm workers around the world and, um, you know, that's how I pay my mortgage, right? right? Like that's, I'm, I'm complicit in this as well to some extent, right? Um, I, one, thing, one thing I really love about your uh, bio on the Note Why Savers account on Instagram is like, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not listening. And mm. you know, that, that gives me comfort because I'm really uncomfortable yeah. about a lot of this stuff. And to know that that's, that's the default, that's how we should be. Like we should, that's be where we should be. That's where we should be living in the, in the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, how are you doing on time? Uh, I'm good. It's, it's, I prep the two people in the other meeting, so I'm, oh. I'm good to hang for another 15. Okay. Uh, great. Uh, well, Kelsey, I know we kind of jumped ahead cause we could just go off in all sorts of different directions. Uh, <laughs> yes. um, so go, going back a little bit, so you're at abide is the name of the orphanage that you're, that you started and, and you start to question that who am I to be matching these families, transitioning these, these kids back to their families. And so then what's the next step of the veil kind of being so yeah Amani Amani was the orphanage I was working at then Abide was the organization that was focused on family preservation so okay. we were working to that so we reunite we worked to reunite kids with their families in Amani and then we created Abide Family Center which was its own separate project which was focused on preventing family separation so you know keeping families together was our tagline and that's what we did and it's still up and running and okay. ugandan led and that's awesome yeah. um i left in 2015 from there okay and i left for a bunch of different reasons but part of that reason um and i think that became solidified over time uh just realizing i was starting to really wrestle i wrote a post back in like 2014 and it was called On Being White and Saving Africa. And honestly, it's interesting to look back on that because that was one of, I think that was, if that was any turning point mm. or marker in time, it was that in 2014, I wrote a post about reflecting on why I was the one in a leadership position. Why yep. did I have the ability and the resources to do this? And so for so long before that, I think I looked at white saviorism always from, I'm not part of the problem. I'm living here. I'm not paying myself a crazy amount of money. I actually went to school. I got a degree in social work. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing it the right way. And it was always able to like read articles on white saviorism or talk about it and think I'm outside of the problem. Mm. That point was the first time in 2014 when I feel like I really started to say, no, wait, I'm actually, this is like this, I'm right in the, in the like crux of it. I'm deeply involved in benefiting from the white savior complex. And so um, yeah, examining like, why am I at 23, 24 years old in a higher position and in charge of Ugandan, like the boss of Ugandan professionals, when this is their community, this is their, um, you know, like, they should be the ones that are in charge of me, like, they should be my boss. Um, and that's the natural order of things. That's how it would be in the US is I would be under their supervision. Um, and so, yeah, it was just examining the fact that I was white American and from an evangelical background and had the access to resources from folks 
in the church communities that we, you know, came from. And so I think, you know, church community, it's not just church folks, but if you look at the way church, like, and evangelicals give and the way that it's just sort of like, as long as you're spreading the gospel and teaching people about Jesus, and as long as you're passionate, there's this mindset of like, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the so you just step into the space and anything that you lack, any lack of, you know, degree or training or expertise, God is just going to equip you and give you those, the skills you need to know what to do. And then, you know, God gets more of the glory because now, um, you know, you were underqualified and you were able to do what you've done, regardless of how well it was done, because, you know, of some divine intervention. And I think, um, a lot of my deconstruction of my own role, like a lot of unpacking and understanding my own role in the white savior complex has also come at a parallel to me deconstructing my faith. Um, I don't associate with the, I can't, I don't call myself a Christian anymore. I don't, I don't go to church. Um, I believe in a higher power. I believe in God, but I have just found the church to be deeply problematic. Um, and I wish that it was a minority of, of the time, but I feel like I, in my experience, I've seen the Christianity weaponized as a, a way to oppress and further marginalize people rather than liberate and free them. So, yeah, that's, yep. <laughs> yeah, and that, that you know, uh, I mentioned the other interview we had with, with uh, Liz, which you should listen to. Um, yeah, I think- absolutely have a lot to talk about. Kelsey and I have different backgrounds as well. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. It's okay. Keep these meetings from popping up. Um, (laughs) And um, it's interesting to me how, um, because you know, there is some sacrifice involved in, in, in those sorts of trips. And I've done some of those not overseas, but within the States when I was younger and I kind of, I've come out of it with almost the same perspective you have, um, even though I know some of the people involved are, are well-meaning and, and thoughtful. Um, but it seems like a bit of a, a view of the old world more than it does the realities of what is happening now, right? I mean, we can, we can see people in other countries. We know their stories. We, we uh, have a better idea of who they are. Um, but again, if we dehumanize them, then some of the more evangelical missions and and ideas to go over and find people who haven't been exposed to the, the capital R right way. Right. <laughs> um, it in, ends up being such a destructive force. And mm. I hate to even say that for the people that, you know, their hearts are in this, in this work, but I mention it in the other podcast. Every time I see one of those pictures, I wonder what are you really doing? Right. And it's not saying you're not saying, and we're not saying every single white person or every single missionary is out being destructive and no, causing harm. but no. we talk when we talk about these things i think that when our first response is to be when our whether it's i hear the word when i hear criticism of christianity or i hear criticism of white people or criticism of americans um or criticism of social workers like so you, like to even get into that right if i hear criticisms of any of those my first response could be but not me i'm one of the good ones and i think that is a lot of our a lot of the time our first response is to try to prove how we are outside of the problem instead of listening and really examining how we're actually part of it instead of actually listening and saying i'm actually like i'm complicit and so 
and and if 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 we are actually doing the work that these things are not going to offend us because either one we know we're doing the work and we know we're working towards not being complicit or two we know that like this is not a like that's not applying to us right that that's that's something that we see as deeply problematic and very prevalent in these different spaces and these different um, communities. But it's, if it's not, if it's not something I'm actively doing, then you can hear it and say, I can put it in its place and not be offended by that. But people who haven't done that work to really look at their own role are going yeah. to be triggered or going to be offended by this and think, Oh, you're just making these sweeping generalizations. Well, when, when whiteness is the power and the force that it is, and it allows us to do so much harm in the world, um, it's okay. I, it's okay for us to get to get talked about um, and to be offended because I think that like that leads to the discomfort, yeah. um, which will lead to, which will lead to change. I think. Right. But, yeah. If if you listen to the first couple episodes of this, we we talked about it, and one of the reasons Kelsey and I would meet and talk over these ideas is I think we're just trying, and I'll say this for myself rather than talk for him, but we are trying to understand and educate ourselves on, on how to make an impact, how to change things. And it is extremely complex. And I get, mm-hmm. I get locked up on it because I don't know what to do because there's so many things and so many choices and so many chances. And I'm one of those people that you know, is kind of the stereotypical uh, corporate guy who has the privilege and the ability to 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 give money or or give time or to spend that uh, because I am and you know I have a good job I can go home at night I have a house that I don't have to worry about my health care is fine right um, but it is very difficult for me and I'm I guess I'm just on the path to learning how I have the biggest impact and I don't know that I found it and the more I drill in the more complicated and, and less effective I get. I think it can be very, it can be very paralyzing to a lot of people. And we've talked about that too, of like, you get paralyzed almost to the point where you're like, okay, I don't want to be a white savior. I don't want to cause more harm than good. I don't want to, you know, I, I want to do good, but it, doing good seems like it's so complex. But I feel like as you're, I, I think we have to be willing to, to mess up and fumble as we are unpacking and understanding power dynamics as we're understanding white supremacy and racism as it affects us on a global scale and in our immediate communities and understanding like all of these different aspects and educating doing the work to educate ourselves while also saying I still want to do good I still want to meet needs that I see and I want to actively be reflecting on and receiving feedback and I think I hear that from definitely from both of you and I would hope from myself is that it's that idea that we because I, I think that it can be the danger in people's hesitation with our platform and with the work that we're doing is that when you see Comic Relief, you know, that was a big response when Comic Relief was starting to lose funding. Oh, look at what you've done. Now people are not going to get the help they need. Um, hmm. Well, here's the thing. People are going to be able to decide whether where they invest their money. And I think that's something that both of you are passionate about is not saying don't don't give, but how you give and where you give is important. Um I know Kelsey, you can speak more to that because you've written a whole book on it. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing that jumps out to to me is like the, this awareness of the hypocrisy of of uh, how we of what we're trying to do often, right? Of just our lives, and so one one um, um, 
one person I look to a lot for just his thinking is Wendell Berry. I don't know if you're familiar okay. with Wendell Berry and Berry in terms of like the environment and he's kind of a philosopher farmer in some ways. But uh, so I was just like frantically searching through my Kindle notes to find some of the stuff that he said. And I want to share a couple of things. Um, yeah. So the religion and environment, this is Wendell Berry, the religion and environmentalism of the highly industrialized countries are at bottom a sham because they make it their business to fight against something that they do not really wish to destroy. We all live by robbing nature, but our standard of living demands that the robbery shall continue. And wow. he has another one here. Um, uh, the great obstacle is simply this, the conviction that we cannot change because we are dependent on what is wrong. But that is the addict's excuse. We know that it will not do. So, you yeah, know, cause wow, I, I mean, <laughs> so much of the work that I do, like I show up places and, and I am able to get doors open and, and conversations had, you know, now to some extent, because I have a track record of, of being able to sh share stories. Um, but still a lot. And in the beginning, especially it's just because I'm a white dude from the United States. Um, right. Right. And I remember like one example of one of the things I, I did in uh, when I was in Bangladesh and this is the very first, you know, step out into the world doing this kind of work is uh, I was looking to have kind of these like funny experiences and there was a movie studio. There's like a, uh, a Bollywood of in Dhaka, Bangladesh, but like a, you know, smaller one. And I'm like, well, maybe I could get on a movie. And I just showed up at the place where they make movies and figured that maybe they would want some like white dude in the background dancing around like an idiot or something. And now I look back on that and I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? And I think <laughs> it was this deep seated idea of knowing that, like, Hey, I could show up. All the doors always open for me in Bangladesh because I'm me, you know? And, right, right. And the, and the, but they were like, what are you doing here? And I'm so thankful <laughs> that there's not, like, video proof of, like, Kelsey, <laughs> like, you know, uh, bathing in his white privilege. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's, I mean, there's, like, photo, I mean, if any of us have been doing, like, there's always, obviously, some type of photo or video evidence, but there's some levels you're like, I'm glad that no one captured that. Oh. That's funny, but so, also very real, right? That's such a good example of exactly how it manifests. Yeah. And, and even when we're talking like more and more things come up, I feel like this is Kelsey confessional here, but um, <laughs> one thing that people love the most about the first book, and that sounds like a stupid thing to say about yourself, but like in, in the first book was that I visited this place called Fantasy Kingdom. And I did this thing where I thought, well, how much does it cost to, to go to a Disney World for one day for one kid? It was $67 at the time, which is a lot more now. And I thought, well, what if I just take as many kids into the amusement park that no one can afford to go to in Bangladesh um, for one price of one kid at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. So I was able to take 20 kids into the amusement wow. park and, and no one could be in there, right? No, no one could afford to be in there. So it was just mm -hmm. us walking around. We had our own personal ride operator and it was it was like this, I don't know how I feel about the experience even, even now, right? Like it right. was kind of good and it was kind of fun and funny, but it was also like, uh, what, what the heck is this? And people often talk about, Oh, that was my favorite part of the book. And I'm like, yeah, people, a lot of people say that, but I don't think I could do that today. Like right. I, I, I think now that, 
I, you know, like if someone just showed up outside of Kings Island here in Ohio and, and said, Hey, I'm from another country. Give me your children. Let's go into this amusement park. <laughs> and like, yeah, it just, just doesn't hold up, but still people, it's like their favorite part of this book. And so each right. time I'm writing, I'm like, well, what's the next fancy kingdom? How do I make it this? How do I make it? How do I bring some lightness and some fun, but like that that's not necessarily a light and fun experience. And, yeah. I feel like I've changed a lot since then too. That and you and you went and you went in there with them, right? So you were walking around with them and basically enjoying the uh, the lens that you got in the process. I I enjoyed it some, but also there was this like deep inside of me. I think that there was this questioning of like what is happening here, right? And yeah, I even but, write about it in a questioning sense to some extent. Yeah, but well but well intentioned. I mean we can right. all see what you were trying to do, give them something they wouldn't have gotten. Right. Um, but then it appears that you're the I don't know, maybe the only you've got the wealth to be able to give them something they wouldn't have gotten. There's yeah. an a different angle on it. Yeah. Well and I, I think a level of white saviorism too, like and we look at that and think there's certain things that I might do in Uganda. There's a lot actually that my life in Uganda that I do not share online at all now oh. because of this, because of, I don't, there's certain things people don't need to know. Right. So if you did that, even if you decided to do that today, Kelsey, you probably wouldn't write it in a book. Yeah. Like that's the difference I think is like, if I don't, it, yes, there is good that comes from that. Obviously like the kids were able to have that experience, but in the sense that like you're get you get a lot of praise for that act now. And like, it's again, you it's in, it's written in it's published. Right. So you can't take that back, but you do have the power and we do have the power to, to address that stuff head on. And that's what you're doing right now. Cause this is a, re- a recorded podcast. <laughs> um, so to be able to say, look, that's not what I would do now. And I do feel uncomfortable about the fact that that was, whether it was the action itself or it was, and I did, I don't know that it's always the action itself. It's the fact that like, do we need to, we didn't need that selfie or we didn't need to like write a blog post about it, or we didn't need, because if we're doing it for the right reasons, um, especially when it's something that if you really just, if I think we just really looked at it and thought, what is going to be the outcome if, if I publish this to a wider audience, like, is it going to benefit me? Is it going to benefit the people that were in this, in this experience? Um, and, and what, like, what 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 story what narrative is it going to perpetuate is it going to help challenge the narrative that people have or because like honestly like that was probably good for people to read but did it teach them anything new about Bangladesh that they didn't know or like did it maybe um and I think that that's the stuff that honestly a few years ago you would have found a lot of different things that I would have written in blogs or in Instagram captions or Facebook updates that I wouldn't share now. And it doesn't mean that those that I haven't stopped doing certain things to like invest in the communities that I live and work in. But it does mean that like, I feel like that obviously we learn in an increased sense of responsibility in the way that we portray that. And it doesn't, again, maybe in the next, if you had a second book or follow up, it would be, you know, the same doing the same type of like, Hey, we have the 60 some dollars and, 20 kids can go into the amusement park, but instead of you doing it, you, you uh, pay for the um, entry fee for one of the parents yeah. and then you're not centered in that experience. Yeah. The kids still get to do what they're doing. Um, and, and you know, that's the less sexy approach, right? Yeah. Like is mm-hmm. I'm not now at the center of this story. I'm, I'm just facilitating 
um, for one of the parents of these kids to go in and do it. Yeah. In the piece, I question my intentions, right? I kind of have this, and that's probably the most value that can come, if any, Mm -hmm. from what I wrote there. But still, that's not what people latch on to, right? People latch on to, oh, that was so great that you did that for those kids. I'm like, right. And we have, we don't have control of that. And that's, what's hard is that you can, um, and to some degree, like if you're writing the questioning and the wrestling, then you do, I mean, you, for your, in your mind, it was probably like, okay, I'm going to, this is going to bring up an important conversation yeah. and it's going to help people start to, and so like, yeah, to some extent, like if that's, I did, I haven't read it. I would love to read the book. Um, so I'll probably have to get a copy after that we're done recording this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I think that that you, we only have so much control, right? We have control over what we put out there into the universe we don't have control over how people respond. Um, but this is what so. I really feel like is important about your story. So, you know, you kind of feel like maybe this isn't your, that maybe you shouldn't have much of a, or you shouldn't have a voice. in like, if you like worked on a book or something like that uh, with your right. group, but like there's, I think there's really something powerful about you sharing, you know, your, your recovering white savior or whatever you refer to yourself, like those right. experiences, I think that people can relate to it. It makes people feel uh, a, a little bit less like they're, um, you know, they're just being told what they're done wrong when you can say, well, I, I did it too. Um, right. That's why I think is a really powerful piece of your story. So I think you should not hesitate to share because when you share that here's where I came from and here's all the things that I did, I would not do now. And here's why I would not do them. I think that's really uh, powerful. Yeah. I think that I'm not, um, and I do share that. I think obviously it hasn't been in book form yet. I've written pretty actively on that in different, whether it was on, it's on the no way saviors platform and talking um, in different in different capacities there, or it's on my personal platforms. Um, I, I definitely really value that, um, feedback. And I, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's, I think that the, the money side (laughs) and I'm not opposed to, uh, writing something that's more like concrete in terms of like a book or an, even an ebook or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, cause at the end of the day, a lot of my lessons learned have been at the cost of, mm. of black people or people of color, um, whether it's friendships and people that have taken time to really mentor me. Um, and so I think that I would just have to find a way to, if I was going to write a book, also find a way for it to benefit, um, certain people or certain communities that have been invalid, like they've been incredibly valuable and they've been like the total reason I am where I am. And that's, I think, really important to note. Um, I absolutely should have said this sooner, but the only reason I'm able to be where I'm at today is because of people of color and especially black people in my life, whether in Uganda or here in the U.S., really taking me aside and like being able to be direct with me, to call me out on, on certain behaviors, on certain ideologies, and to not to, to care about me enough and to care about our relationship enough to not just co-sign the things that are not right. And I think a lot of times because there's so much discomfort in conversations around racism and white supremacy, um, especially in relationships with the people we're closest to, we get scared that we're going to offend people or we're going to hurt them. 
And so often our feelings and our sensitivity and our comfort is prioritized over the basic humanity and respect of black and brown people or people of color in general. And so that is, um, yeah, man, they like, I have so many really like amazing mentors that have helped me be the person I am. This isn't just like, like for me, like as Kelsey Nielsen, this isn't just like an evol like a revolution and a revelation over time that I just had on my own. It's been people really investing in me and yeah. So when, when did you decide to go back? So 2015, uh, I think you were in the States and then you went back to Uganda and that, that's where you are based most of the time now. Is that correct? Uh, so I'm based in Uganda primarily. Okay. Um, I am home for a few weeks, but I went back to Uganda because of No White Saviors. Um, mm -hmm. I had honestly, when I moved home in 2015, um, I was on coming home on a sabbatical from Abide and I thought I would be going back, but I didn't end up going back. I ended up actually resigning from my role within the organization. Um, and I, that was really hard because Abide was very, very important to me. It was um, something I valued. And I think that was pretty much my entire like focus and passion in life at that point. Probably a lot of your um, identity too was in that. Yes. Thing. Yes. Very much my identity. So it was like, that was being stripped away. Um, and I think honestly that experience has even helped shape the work I'm doing now because I saw how much like value was invested in like a level, a huge level of white saviorism of like having this role. And again, was there a lot of good done? Absolutely. But it was also this like identity of the girl who lived in Uganda and who co-ran an NGO that helped families and all of this stuff that was very much like that felt good, right? Like I was making my mom proud. I was making people in the church I grew up in proud. And um, now <laughs> I hope I'm still making her proud to some extent, but you know, um, I'm definitely in a very different way and and obviously i'm i know that we disagree on a lot of things especially when it comes to church um but yeah i i went back to uganda in september this in 2018 so it's not even a year ago so i we started no white saviors while i was still in the states i had just finished grad school um no plans at that point to move back to uganda i went back in september for about a month and then as this case with renee bach was uh, and serving his children um, which if anyone listening to the podcast doesn't know about that, please visit our Instagram page and um, even just like put in Renee Bach into Google and you'll see a ton of stuff come up. But we, this is the case of the American woman who came over at 18 years old to Jinja, Uganda, the town I lived in and was practicing medicine um, without a medical license and was, was, it would just, it escalated over time and a ton of kids died. Um, a ton of kids were harmed in the process because you can't act, you can't uh, appropriately treat a child with a critical illness without actually having medical training. I mean, I know that sounds like that's so obvious, but um, people have a very much a different standard for what they think people in Uganda or Africa as a whole deserve. Yeah, and I just so, can't imagine like taking my child to the hospital and an 18 year old and having care over my child and oh it, yeah with you no training never. and leading to that right and like you would never even like let it like because of our level of like uh, access and education and understanding if you saw like an 18 to 20 year old like 
who didn't really seem like they knew what they were doing. Like, first of all, she wouldn't even be there, right? She wouldn't even be in the hospital yes. when you were working it. Yeah. You were taking your child to, but like, even then you ha would have enough knowledge, but these are families from, again, from rural areas. They have no other option. You have that level of, in remember, this is all circling back to uh, the beginning of our conversation of this instant idea that white people are just qualified and knowledgeable and like able to do whatever they're were, were they're doing. And so most of the families that we talked to and that were served by this organization were considered, called her the white doctor. So they, mm. they believed that she was a white doctor. Um, they trusted her to treat their children and they had no idea. They had, they, they gave, they gave her their full trust and belief wow. that they, their children were getting the very best care when a lot of them were leaving government health centers that were actually registered or clinics that were actually registered and going to her home, which wasn't registered properly, was not registered to be able to take in critically ill children. And she was the one doing the bulk of the high level decisions and medical practice. And so we, um, that case, we thought we have initially had reported it in 2015 um, a bunch of people in the community in Jinja that had been aware of it reported it um, and it didn't, nothing really happened. They did get shut down because of not having the proper medical license, mm -hmm. but they didn't, they were able to reopen and none of what Renee was doing was ever looked into. It was reported to police and then she got brought in for questioning and it just got like, there was never even a proper investigation. So we basically at that point thought we've done everything in our power this is just the broken justice system that is an mm. issue around the world. It's not just a problem in Uganda. That's a problem for the outcome of the justice systems in, in our own Western countries too. And so we just, you know, kind of thought this is not, there's no, this isn't going to go anywhere. And so going back and then meeting with some lawyers that ended up taking on this case in Uganda, we have had to fundraise and pay their, the legal fees, but, they've been really awesome and have taken on this case. And so because of that, I made the decision to move back um, for the time being, because it's been a very, there's been a lot of this case is we've, we've been threatened. We've had people actually harmed in the process. Now we can't tell you like that. It definitely was this organization or anyone linked to it, but the timing of it all. I remember that. Just, I remember that. Yeah. Because there's like a yeah. GoFundMe around that too, right? For to help people yep. out. Yep. Yep. We basically like had to get one of our members out of the country oh. into a safer because this is what the people will resort to those things when they know the level of what they have done and they want to try to scare you out of pursuing justice. Mm. Um, sometimes that is what you're up against. And so with that being said, I I was able to, I was in between, I just wrapped up my one job that I was working in for two years in the uh, child welfare and juvenile justice here in Pennsylvania. And I was, I was able to, like, I had the freedom and the ability to move over because No White Saviors was growing and that we took on this case. Um, I just knew that it, like, we could be more effective if Olivia and I were getting this work done mm -hmm. in person. And we are the two members of the team that have the most time. We have a few other members that, you know, we jump on calls. We, you know, one is working on helping us work on the website. Um, another is, you know, ha has worked um, 
that's Sharon. She has just had a baby and is doing her master's in Finland and also runs an organi organization in Jinja. Um, so she just has so much going on that she doesn't have the, as much time um, uh, as we do. And so, yeah, Olivia and I are part of a larger team, but we are the two that are running it for primarily because we have the most time. Yeah, I feel like you were, you all were very inclusive at the beginning that like this is like a community. Cuz I remember very early on that like I got a I don't know, an invite or something to probably through Facebook community or something. <laughs> and and then the next thing I knew, y'all had like 100,000 followers <laughs> really not like, like really <laughs> amazing conversations that I would, you know, that you read the post and you're like, "Oh, and I think that the initial reaction for many people is to bristle, like when you say right. white privilege. And I think that's the, 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 how we all feel, right? But it, okay, right. bristle. And now it's like what I learned in anthropology, right? Like when you come across a culture or a practice that is different than you're used to, like at first you might be like, oh, that doesn't seem like that's right. Or this, you shouldn't eat this, but you, you, that's natural. But then, then you need to listen, right? Then you need right. to examine more of the of your thoughts and feelings and try to see from other people's points of view. And um, that's the important step. The bristle, I think, is completely natural. It's that it's that being willing to listen, the next step that takes some work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure that we probably have to wrap up. This is so good. <laughs> I, are you sure you're not going to edit this because it's really long? <laughs> I don't know. I probably should. I know. It's, I don't even know how long we've been doing this, but I probably should let you go. We hope to talk to Olivia at some point as well. Yes. I'm, I, I already talked to her about um, throwing out like days that would, she would be available. What, um, after, I guess maybe you want to, um, cause honestly, she's gonna, she's incredible in terms of there's, we both have very different voices, obviously very different roles, very different, but we are very, I think a very strong team because of, we've had to work through a lot of this stuff in real time. Yeah. Having worked with her at Abide, I was her boss and mm. that mm. shouldn't have been the case. And yeah. we talk about that. The yeah. fact that like, there was a discomfort and a, like, just an unnatural like setup and and mm. and she felt that and i've you know constantly looking at and understanding like even how do we strengthen and make sure we're not falling into those patterns and staying on top of that in this work has been i think in a lot of ways it gives you more ability to to mentor others when you've actually lived it yourselves yeah um we're not just speaking this out in theory. We're saying, no, we've actually like, we even are doing it now. It's not just in the past. We're actively doing it now. Yeah. I think it's, you're a great team kind of coming from like the opposite angles, right? Yep. Like kind <laughs> of meeting in, in the middle and form, forming like Voltron and um, yes. <laughs> more powerful <laughs> together. Uh, one, yeah. one, I'll, I'll wrap up with this, with this question. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for the time that you've given. But you know, one thing that I think that we have both benefited from um, is that we've, we've had these experiences. We've gone uh, to countries where there is uh, uh, perhaps harsher realities that the folks face and uh, maybe tougher conditions and access to food and education and things like that. And, and that's made us like look on ourselves and, um, you know, but, but also there's been experiences that we've had that are that now in hindsight, we kind of cringe a little bit about, but how do we, how can people have these experiences responsibly? Like we both maybe did things that 
we don't feel the best about, um, but we learn from those experiences. And perhaps if we hadn't had those experiences, we wouldn't have made this, been on this journey. So how do other people get to this place where they're seeing that they're part of this, right? These are the questions that we should be asking. And, and, and um, without make me taking those missteps. Right. I, yeah, I think that, um, I think that a lot of, because to be honest, like if someone had, and maybe that's the, like the argument for a book that I could potentially write is that if someone had shared all of this with me before, and I actually had the ability to contextualize it and unpack it and understand it. Um, and not just as a matter of like opinion or as like a, yeah, as just like a one person's experience, but actually bringing in other people's experiences and other voices and, um, and, and research and data and different things like that to really like bolster something substantial of like, okay, yeah, I just feel like there is a book out there that I, I needed to read that isn't there yet. <laughs> like that, um, and maybe that, maybe that's the book that um, I need to maybe be part of creating. Um, but I think that that's, um, I think that there's so many, there are those of us that really do want to do it the right way, but don't necessarily have the education or the resources or the insight into what that needs to look like. Um, and so I think that looks like incorporating this into university education. It mm. looks like, I think, sadly, I know this is, I, I'm most, uh, has, like, I'm just the most defeatist and, like, not hopeful about churches doing it. Mm. Um, I know that that sounds terrible, but is the reality. Um, I think that the voices... Um, that they need to hear from the most are, and sadly, here, here's the thing is that people will listen to something I would write and things that I, I would say in a way that they aren't, they're going to tune out and not listen to if it's the voice of Olivia or mm. uh, another Ugandan or African national. And that is racism and white supremacy at work is that we would rather listen to someone who looks like us and who is in the same, you know, level of, power privilege as us than we would from the people in the communities that we or the countries we are going to like quote unquote help and so I I think that it's actively addressing even that of like why we have the platform or the the ears that we have and so yeah I don't know I think that it's obviously yeah I think there's merit to um like, like, like that is life, right? Is that this is just a uh, one area of like talking about because I think for work and for raising children and for friendships and like our love lives, all those things, like it's all like a stumbling. No one ever has the perfect like formula or the perfect um, solution and way to approach all of these different areas of life. But we learn along the way. We learn as we go. We um, but the thing is, like, I think that there are there are certain things that we can be doing to make fewer mistakes. And, and I do think that that what like what I said earlier, one of those things is being able to share about our own experiences and our own missteps along the way. And yeah. and um, not without purpose. Right. Like it's very much like um, talking about how they were able to happen, the harm that they caused 
um, what could be done better and giving people a solution, right? It's not just being critical. It's actually giving people an alternative and saying, if you do want to help, here's how. And so instead of saying, don't go, don't travel, it's saying, okay, if you do travel, this is how to travel responsibly and to yeah. travel ethically. If you do give, this is how to give responsibly and give ethically. And so that's, I think, a really important um, aspect of this. Yeah, in my research for where my giving I came across a, a term that I don't think is really caught on, but in, uh, it's, I think in, uh, I found it in a research paper but called like fair trade travel. Like look at our travels oh. in terms of this, like who's getting what, right? So much of yeah. our travel is consumption of other cultures and other places and and right. and to and first off just to be aware that that exists right how do we how do we do that in a responsible way that that does not make a negative impact on the people that we interact with or the the purchases that we make um, but then we also have to ask well what's in it for the people who we're meeting um, so right. even if it's not just even if it's not a uh, a service trip of some type, even if it's just us traveling somewhere, I think to take, take going with this heart of like a, uh, this asking yourself questions and kind of trying to uh, reach for uh, fair trade travel. Like, how am I? Yeah. yeah I, I love that term. Actually. I've never even, I've never heard it. And now I'm going to be, you have given me homework. Use it. Uh, I am I'm going to send you, that up. <laughs> I'll send you a copy of where am I giving? I think that's the, that's the book that, and I, yeah. you know, I, it's to some extent I'm nervous, right? Because I think there are some parts in there that are like, oh man, like how will, how will you look at this? How will, you know, how do I feel about this? How do I examine that? But I love that. I just really appreciate the journey that you've been on, having seen where you were in 2012 and asking these questions that you were asking and, and really opening my eyes up too when you were asking those questions of like, why should these kids be in an orphanage? when they have parents, right? Like what's, right. what's the system that's leading to this? And, and those questions just have continued to grow. So I'm really excited about, um, you know, where all this is going to take you. And I just appreciate Thank the questions you. that you've helped me ask myself. So for that, uh, Kelsey, you're definitely good people. And thanks for coming on. the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been so a pleasure. Where can, where can people find the work of No White Saviors? Yes. Yeah, so people can find us at No White Saviors. It's spelled, it's spelled not, or sorry, <laughs> it's not spelled with the British or not. It, it's the American way. Okay. And so a lot of people want to put a U in Saviors. It's just spelled the, the American way, unfortunately. So it's No White Saviors on Instagram. That's our biggest platform. We're also on Twitter, also at No White Saviors. And we um, have a website that's in, in the works. We have a Facebook page that's also in the works. Um, both you can find nowhitesaviors.org and um, you can find No White Saviors on Facebook if you search it. So we're on all platforms pretty much, um, but some are stronger than others. So if people really want to get a taste and a feel for what where we're most active is on Instagram, absolutely, hands down. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So that was uh, our second part of Kelsey Nielsen of No White Saviors. And for me, um, it made me really reflect back on past experiences and the doors that open up just because of the color of my skin and, and where I'm from. And um, as I was listening to her, like even more experiences kept coming up. I was like scribbling them down, but I didn't want to make this like a therapy session for me. <laughs> yeah, well, it usually should be. <laughs> no, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed that. Um... Uh, your stories were interesting too, 
especially as you, in the context of this conversation, looking back on those things um, and how you might have been perceived. And you admitted it even with Rosie, who is one of my favorite uh, people from your book, your your most recent book, uh, Where Am I Giving, um, that you you think about pictures with her and the sort of superstar hero that she is and all she's lived through. And then you're there just talking to her. You didn't pull her out of the slums. You didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, so the perception of you standing there of someone thinking, hey, Kelsey, good job saving this. What? Yeah. No, no, I didn't. Maybe she was helping me, right? Right. You know? Yeah. Like, in many ways she was. She did. Right? Yeah. In many yeah. ways she was helping me. Yeah, I think it really comes down to two things. At least as we were in the in the interview itself, it comes down to two things in my mind, and I tend to oversimplify, I think. But the first one is intention. Um we've we've had we've hit this subject in other um episodes but you have the the intention of what you're there doing right so i have my own issues with how missionaries work good and bad and all those all those things that we've already kind of covered so what's your intention what are you there to do are you doing good right <clears throat> and then the second one that i think has become more prevalent is perception Right. So people posting and that take either trips or mission trips or some other sort of volunteering effort and the perception of what they're doing and the pictures they post matter. Right. Um, even in the mentality of people. So you mentioned, um, you know, a couple pictures being posted and people commenting saying, Kelsey, I'm so glad you're there. I'm so glad you could do that for them. I don't know what to say to them. Right. 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 I, I'm, no, I'm, they're helping me out. Right? right. They're sharing about their experiences so yeah. I can write about them. Yeah. But the negative perception from that could be, well, I would think, well, I don't because I know you now, but I would think, oh, look at this guy. He thinks he's, thinks mm. he's really going out there to take care of these people and he's probably just pushing yeah. something on them. Mm-hmm. Um, or look, he thinks he's gaining some sort of spiritual or uh, charitable capital with people so that his reputation is that he does these things, right? Yeah. Which we talked a little bit about in there. Yeah, and I wonder how much of this existed before social media, right? I mean, yeah. no White Savers is having this conversation on social media, but so much of this, when I first started traveling, there wasn't social media, yeah. right? Yeah. And I was traveling a little bit differently. It was kind of me just sitting on the beach in Thailand eating pineapple, right? Just <laughs> That Which does no good for no yeah. for anybody. Yeah, it's good for me, <laughs> I guess. Um, but now that there can be this like status gain from a photo in a faraway place, right? Um, well, but she talked about that, right? So social media spreads it, right? It's it's a lot uh, it's a lot broader. It um, uh, it 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 gets in there with vacation pictures. It's something that you can send. I could easily send out these pictures to 500,000 people mm-hmm. or more. And then, you know, who knows where it goes. Um, but she mentions that it used to take place in churches, right? Mm-hmm. In the church, you come back and somebody has taken pictures and there are photography. Um, there are photographs up um, that also help you with that capital and, and help you um, within a smaller community gain that sort of reputation, right? So, yeah, I think social media has affected it, but it still existed. Yeah. Yeah, now it's just more instantaneous, right? I've got um, some tips here. Oh, I'll just wait. I didn't even think about that sound of that. We don't run our dehumidifier enough. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, so a couple of things about photos. I mean, I think social media plays such a part in this. It's just how we look at ourselves, experiencing the world differently. You know, instead of like us looking out 
it's us with a camera looking at ourselves mm-hmm. in this environment. Right. Yep. And so um, a couple things to touch on here um, I wrote about in giving a guy who was in – I think this is from – yeah, it's from Kenya. And he uh, was writing um, a piece for the New York Times about his experience like in Kenya having his photos taken just like moving through his life, right? Right. So here's this quote. I was 16. I was outside my 100-square-foot house washing dishes, looking at the utensils with longing because I hadn't eaten in two days. Suddenly, a white woman was taking my picture. I felt like a tiger in a cage. Before I could say anything, she had moved on. Slum tourism is a one-way street. They get photos. We lose a piece of our dignity. Whoa. Yeah. And um, so then um, I read about this a little bit. I got some tips from – to how, you know how to do this responsibly. I, I think it's important that we we take photos and, and we share in a way that isn't taking away dignity, right? Right. Um, how do you share? How do you share the culture? Share the experience without yeah taking I mean, away. Like if someone sees a photo of me and then they say, "Oh, you're doing such a good job." I feel like I must have not done a good job of giving that photo context, mm-hmm. or maybe they just didn't do a good job of reading right, what I had right. written, right? Yeah. Um, so this is actually from the Norwegian Students and Academics. Oh, my been in your book. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, technically your book. <laughs> well, you, you bought it. Um, I got like a dollar for it. It's really depressing. <laughs> the Norwegian Students and Academics International Assistance Fund, right? And they do something. I think this is the group that does the radiator funds, which did this amazing like fundraising campaign for Norway, right? It was kind of the spoof campaign oh, where, oh, like, oh. they went to gotcha. they went to like Kenya, and they they told people about how cold it was in Norway. So then all the Kenyans were raising funds to buy radiators for people <laughs> in Norway, right? <laughs> it's only the spoof, right? right. So it's yeah. like you know um, the reverse, right? The yeah. the Kenyans yeah. helping the Norwegians. So anyhow, they have some tips for if you are out in the world taking photos, how to do that in a responsible way. And their very first thing is, is uh, promote dignity hmm. and don't make sweeping generalizations that strengthen stereotypes, right? So don't look at it and say, oh, this kid's you know, in a bad situation or doesn't have enough food to eat or yeah, yeah. Um, they aren't agency of their own change. Um, two is gain informed consent, especially with kids, right? So ask if you can take someone's photo mm-hmm. and um, especially with kids, right? Like, I mean, if you're It's here, not a zoo. If you wouldn't do it in the United States, yeah. don't do it in some other country. Right. You know, if you go to your kid's school, you're kind of like, well, maybe I shouldn't post pictures of these other kids yeah. because, you know, they're not my kids. Yeah. Uh, three, question your intentions. And this is, I think, a big takeaway from all of or what Kelsey had to say. Uh, are you having an exotic experience to look cooler, right? Are you raising awareness or funds? If so, are you respecting um, – the other principles. I'm not sure what the other principles are, but um, four is bring down stereotypes. Don't perpetuate pity. You know, and I think when I took pictures of Rosie, I gave the context of how that she was this amazing change maker in her own community. Right. Even still, people would look at that picture and say, "Like, oh, so great, you're helping her." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you weren't. You were interviewing her. You were learning from her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the context. But I think you did a good job of that context. But still, somebody can look at that. And because of those perceptions of her color and yours yep. and your location, you must be helping her in a very 
in a tough situation. Yeah. Like I'm a have, right? That traveled right. a far distance to right. go be with people who have less than yeah. I do, right? Yeah. So surely that makes me the good person who's yeah. helping other people. Yeah, the the part of the interview that really got me, and I actually said it to my wife, Karen, um, who you know is upstairs, um, uh, was the context of the little kid looking at you and saying, do you want me to smile or cry? And I thought, wow. I mean, that is somebody who's been trained yeah. that there are going to be white people, missionaries, Christians, whatever, showing up saying, okay, you, you're trying to sell something. Do you want me to sell it with you? Yeah. Oh, that really was and just the telling. negative that, that, you know, that's our, our that's an, about us. That's a negative influence that we put on that community. Right. 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 Yeah. And, um, you know, th- this, a- every interview I do with someone or, you know, I hang out with someone for the day and then at some point I usually have a kind of a sit down conversation with them. And I always ask like, do you have any questions for me? And <laughs> in, in Kenya, there were several times and this, and I've been in Kenya before, but it just seemed like there had been this shift where I'd ask them that question and it would be like, can you help me in some way? Right. So I think that we can help create this culture of dependency as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I really look forward to talking to um, Olivia, who's well, with Kelsey with the No White Saviors. And Olivia is from Uganda. And right. kind of talk about how, how her perception. I mean, maybe she sees it completely differently yeah. than I do. Or if she sees it among her own, her own people, that there is this increased dependency. Mm-hmm. And uh, people that have been part of these aid organizations for years or have been served by them in some way, when that aid organization goes away, they're looking yeah. for the next one, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, it is. I, I'm glad you brought that up because <clears throat> so far we have just talked to another white person, although well-intentioned, and then you and I, yeah. we need to get to her and talk about somebody who is there and lives there and has experienced it and get her perception. So that'll be a good follow-up episode, I think, for everybody to hear. Yeah, which is, I think that's why Kelsey, uh, you know, I think it really, why No White Saviors really, really works, right? right? Because right. she, I think, might be the only uh, white voice yes, yes. in that organization. Nothing thing. negative about her. Yeah. I just, it will be good to have that other voice in the equation for people to hear. Um, so I don't, gosh, I've heard a lot about mission trips, and I've heard a lot about aid, and it's very rare that you hear from, I mean, all the aid, aid that went to Haiti on uh, the many disasters that happened there. I don't, uh, looking back on it, I don't know that I've heard much voices, of many voices of the people that were in, affected by or supposed to be impacted by. Yeah. Um, didn't even, don't even think about and it. And those are the voices that need included first right. and the most. Right. right, exactly. And I think that's something that I really walked away from this yeah. conversation. But if you're a savior, those voices don't matter because yeah. you know. And you're going to say, and then, and then when the culture is that people not the, there's just the, the system is that people look to you for the answer and that can, that can feel good. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm valued here yeah. all of a sudden. Well, yeah. even when you don't know yeah. the answer, uh, yeah. yeah, it's complex. And, uh, I think it was really great talking to Kelsey. I'm looking forward to talking to Livy as well. Yeah. Great. Me too. High five, Jay. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffrithcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. 
Visit KelseyTimmerman.com slash good people to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world. <laughs>